Hey everyone. Mike Hahn is a fascinating guy who completely changed the trajectory of his life in the midst of the COVID pandemic. Mike was a former sushi chef who, after multiple setbacks, became a mural artist in Detroit. He's a quote-unquote modern vandalist and espouses the belief that for something beautiful to be created, destruction must come first. His own story is much the story of Detroit. It's one of destruction, but also one of rebirth and of hope. Mike is such a great dude, and I love talking to him. We talked a lot about his art, but we also did a deep dive on mental health and each shared some of our own personal stories. Please check out Mike's artwork and give him a follow on Instagram. And without further ado, here's Mike. As an artist now, it's like there, there was no risk anymore. I got so low that there was no longer risk that I could only do something that was like, I could do whatever I wanted. And it didn't matter what I did because I'm already unemployed. I'm already going to get evicted in January because I don't have any money. The state's not helping me even though they're supposed to since June. So it's like, I have nothing to lose. Absolutely nothing to lose. So I could do whatever I wanted. And that was absolutely liberating. Mike on, let's do this, brother. Thanks awesome. for coming. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, awesome. So you're Korean American, so under Korean rules, I gotta I gotta call you by your official title, right? <laughs> so I gotta ask you, how old are you? I'm 36. Oh, you're young, man. Yeah. Okay. What's the formal title for like younger brother? I know for older brother, it's 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 a uh, young. Uh, yeah. There you go. And Tongseng. Tongseng. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And so my wife would also call you oppa, right? Yeah. There All you right, go. Sweet. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and you speak better Korean than I do. <laughs> oh man, I'll tell you what. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm married to a Korean-American woman, and uh, her parents cook for me all the time. And I got to tell you, I have like a stomach of a Korean man. I'll tell you what, my wife, for whatever reason, doesn't even eat kimchi. I'm like, come on, what? yeah. I'm like, you're not really Korean. Wow. So got to get her on the uh, on the train. Like, I know. <laughs> I don't right? know like... Well, Mike, I'm super stoked to talk to you. I've read your story. You know, I've I've read the articles that's been done on you, and. Uh, I'm excited to dig into it. So getting getting into it right off the bat, can you take me back to the beginning of COVID when it was still called coronavirus? Yep. And we were not really sure what was coming down the pipe. And then we got into that lockdown. Mm-hmm. So I was, um, I just came back from Denver. Um, I was brought back to open up a restaurant in Ann Arbor. And uh, I was going to open up an eight seat uh, tasting menu concept in the basement, uh, it was a subterranean restaurant, and I was going to be inside the private dining room. So it was essentially going to be like a pop-up inside, like a, a secret um, kind of restaurant. And um, eight seats only, um, just on the weekend, and it's going to be my Korean-American uh, expression of sushi. And um, yeah, so we were, we were a month away from soft opening, and uh, had gotten everything ready, and then, yeah, COVID hit, and... Uh, destroyed that restaurant concept and left me unemployed uh, for the next six months. That's depressing. Man. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of, there's a lot of investment dollars and sweat equity that goes into that. So I can't imagine what a disappointment that would be to you. Yeah. Well, I got really lucky with this one because I've, I, it was the third restaurant I had failed to open um, in, in this area. Um, the fir- first two I tried to bootstrap and kind of get going. 
um, there was uh, like a, an investor um, of he's an owner of this um, restaurant group uh, who brought me back. And so I was technically an employee, mm. um, but I had all the perks of like getting to do my own thing. And um, they, they paid for, you know, the tableware to be handmade and like all kinds of things. And it was going to be, you know, a really special experience. And I didn't have the risk that I had had previously. Okay. Um, but then um, I, I lost employment and, you know, got on unemployment and all of that stuff. But right. the state stopped paying me in June. <laughs> Man, yeah, exactly. That's that's really tough. And yeah. I think of your concept. That sounds awesome. It sounds like that movie Jiro Loves Sushi. Have yep. you seen that? Yeah, of course oh, you have. A million right. times, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, yeah, of course I have. Yeah. But it sounds like definitely something that would be very exclusive and very special in a lot of ways. And I love the progression of your Instagram. So I, I was, I'm going through your Instagram, you know, I'm stalking you a little bit. And I go back to the beginning and I noticed that a lot of your photos are these beautiful su- sushi photos, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's omakase, right? Yeah. So the individual I didn't know what that was until like three months ago. Sadly. Okay. Nevertheless, uh, I find it interesting that that progression went into art. Yeah. So you started off with this narrative and then you make this drastic change when COVID happens and you go into your the, your your heart of, of art for a, a silly way of putting it. But mm-hmm. you, you follow this passion of all of a sudden doing this art. Yeah. Was that always there for you? Yeah, it it was. Um, it, it was it's something that bizarrely restaurants were um, something that I ha- had wanted to open because I, I cared about. You know, I love sushi. I've I've loved sushi since I've loved art. You know, since childhood. Um, but the 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 impetus was like, if if I do the restaurant, then I'm going to generate foot traffic. And if I have foot traffic, then I can sell art. Wow. So it was really weird with this idea that like I needed to open, I felt I needed to open up something that people needed in order for them to consume something that they didn't need, which you know, that's how I viewed art was this luxury. Um, but the philosophy of my art um, and food, it's all been the same. It's all um, in, in my entrepreneurial efforts. It's all been about sustainability and being mindful of materials, whether they're um, organic materials, you know, food, um, things that. Uh, it, it, I considered it a mortal profession, right? Where I had to take a life in order to nourish a life, and that was that, that was really heavy, you know, for me. And in in practicing my art, I, I view it in the very same way. Where, uh, like my most recent paintings are with bone black, which is a paint made from uh, charred animal bones. So it's taking literal death, and and trying to uh, create something that has value and, and new life. Damn. Yeah, <laughs> it's fascinating that you know that those pigments come from such strange places, and the fact that would you say it was charred bone? Yeah. So there's a company called Ebonex um, mm-hmm. that's in Melvinville, I think. It's like just out a, a suburb of Detroit. Detroit. Yep. Yeah. And they've been producing uh, bone char for over a hundred years. Damn. They were at one point the largest um, company in Detroit. And um, and so they used to use bison, right, way back when, right, <laughs> way back in the day. Whoa. And now they use uh, cattle, you know, because we have an abundance of cows. Um, but they do that same traditional process, and they're the largest producer of this pigment in the country. Um, and so it's it's pretty special to me that it's like that it's here, and then Detroit's motto is, 
you know, we hope for better things that will arise from the ashes. That's on the flag. So all the paintings are like, you know, it's this like super deep nod to Detroit every time I paint because that's it's my uh, paint of choice, you know. Damn. You know, I, I'm a big art fan, right? I'm a big art geek, and it's something maybe a lot of people don't know about me, but going to the DIA, I was looking at Brugal's uh, uh, wedding dance painting from the 1500s, right? Mm. And that red paint that they used, that pigment came from little bugs, little yep. red uh, cochineal, I think they called it. Mm-hmm. But it was so valuable back at that time that when it went to, like, Antwerp, like, uh, in Europe, they, uh, they said that it was just as valuable behind silver and gold, Wow. So it really had high value. Wow. But you like that black too because you said it's a it's all the colors together, right? Yeah. So I, I'm very much enamored with that idea of of uh, the color black and how um, the the visible colors in the spectrum are are present. You know, you can combine red, yellow, and and green and blue and whatever, and you can make black, right? And so I think it's something that um, your eye, when you look at the color black. You see black, you know, um, but the idea that there's more there that you cannot see that your eye, you can't pull out red when you look at black. Right. Um, and, and that to me is is really it's a fun way to help show people like right in front of their face when I paint in black and white that you're not looking at everything. You know, it's it's not all there and you have to learn a little bit more. You have to dig a little bit deeper and you find that truth is is kind of beneath those layers and that there's way more. And if you. Just learn about human sight. We don't see all the colors that, are, you know, even if we do have, you know, sight and we're not colorblind, right? Right. Um, that there's different variations where birds see far more colors. There are far more colors that exist than the human eye can detect. Don't you, I appreciate what you just said, but don't you worry that when it comes to your art, it can come off to your, your normal viewer, your first time viewer is almost one-dimensional i'm not i'm not talking in the sense of your actual designs but in terms of like your your black on white yeah absolutely and um i've had a few people say like you're just copying keith herring you know yeah and he's a huge influence of mine and i've been very public about like he's he's my number one like him and uh mies van der Rohe, mm-hmm. they are my you know heroes yeah you know keith herring though looking at looking at his art Comparing it to yours, you know, Keith Haring's was was certainly great. But what I noticed about his is that he would do full full on life. I say life forms, but a full on image of like a person, but sure. it just wouldn't have a face, right? Sure. So um, <laughs> I was looking through his uh, I was looking through his stuff, and there's this uh, piece that Keith Haring did that I like. It's called Safe Sex. Okay. Are you familiar with it? No, no. <laughs> it's just two of those images, and they're both jerking each other off. <laughs> yep, yep. I mean, yeah, there, there's some, yeah. So so from from a, like if you really like study art or, or you look at like art and you understand what Keith Haring his work what the what it spoke about in context my work is night and it's just completely different yeah um, I don't have the same type of uh, message that he had um, and because mine's personal right and my story is different than his and so I think uh, people get confused with aesthetics all mm-hmm. the time with art is like if something looks a certain way it's art you know or it's artistic um, but to me, art is, is predominantly about context, you know, and, and the visuals uh, need to enhance um, what, what the message is, you know, what the question is. And it helps you see, you know, in a way that maybe you haven't seen before. And so without understanding those things, if you judge uh, artwork by what's on the page, you know, visually, it's not worth anything in my mind. Like that's it's just like. Uh, it's just decorative, right? It, it, um, unless you have the context. 
Right, that makes sense. And art has been a vehicle really for for not only expression, but for uh, political message, for for uh, religion, obviously. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely agree with you on that. I think there's a lot to be said. Uh, I think with Keith Haring too, he did a lot more color as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, looking at your artwork and I, I hate to put it in a category and, and I hate when, when people do that, you know, this is, they put it in a bucket and that way by, by putting it in a bucket with a certain title, they can then try to understand it in, in that way. And, you know, I think about my own reflection of, of your work and while I said what I just said, I do think that there almost is some uh, Picasso influence in your work, or at least the way I interpret it in terms of, you know, Picasso, Pablo Picasso went through a number of different styles of his art, right? But when he got to the later part of his life, he was doing a lot of cubism. He was doing a lot of, um, there's a, a variation of cubism. It's called synthetic cubism, where, where it's a lot of those jagged lines and some of it seems very strange juxtaposed on it, on, you know, uh, you know, image on image. But I, uh, I see your work kind of as that. I, I, I love that it's this this almost amalgamation of, of all these, you know, different shapes and patterns. And in a sense, I think to myself, you know, what I see that, that you do is almost like what I feel and think in my head sometimes, you know. Uh, you know, we go around the, the day, day to day, and, you know, our uh, thoughts are all jumbled. We're thinking about tomorrow and we're thinking about the past. And, no. you know, we're trying to identify shapes and faces. and Absolutely. You know, and I think that I, I'm, I'm really glad you shared all that because it's, it's I think, spot on, you know. Um, and, and for me, it's very much um, the work is... For me, I can break it down in, into its individual components and understand it for like, this is um, really intentional. And I don't like telling people exactly what that is all the time. Like, mm-hmm. um, But for, for me, it's, you know, uh, they're characters and, and each one is it's built upon another one. So each uh, painting is, uh, there's no sketch, you know, it's uh, all done organically. And it's very much in that Bauhaus kind of influence as well, where... You know, you have hard organic shapes and you have or, uh, geometric shapes and then you have organic. And so the process is very much about finding balance within the space. So one form dictates the next form. So if there's, uh, you know, a, a hard geometric sh- uh, shape, then typically an organic shape will follow to help balance out those hard lines. What do you mean by an organic shape? So like a curvier line versus uh, like a square, right? So you'll see those two things generally meet. Um, and so, and, and the process is in connecting these characters, you know, even though most people view it as like abstract work, uh, to me, it's not, uh, to me, it's very much about, um, characters or, uh, uh architecture or, uh, living things or non-living things that have eyes, you know, that have human, that, that are made human, um, or, or humanistic, I guess, so that, um, you understand that everything has a life, right? Like this table, it, it was a tree and the tree was alive, you know? Right. And so all that kind of stuff. So all these inanimate, you know, so it's a circle. And if I put eyes on it, right, then it's, it, it makes you, you know, feel like it, it's, it's, it was a lot, it, it's alive. It could be alive. Right. And so in, in general, um, I, I don't call myself like an abstract artist or, you know, whatever, you know, clearly defining, um, what it is that my practice is. Um, but I found a great term for it is it's called, um, I'm calling my practice, uh, modern vandalism. And so, um, it's this, uh, realization that for me, in order to create, you must destroy. 
And so it, it, from food and from my art practice, it's all about the sustainable effort. And so if we're understanding that in order to um, make something new, you have to transform a material. That's what you mean by sustainability? Because I, I have an idea of what sustainability means, but I, I, may, I don't fully understand. Sure. And, and I mean, sustainability, is it's it's vague, right? You, you can apply it to corporations, apply it to, you know, in sushi, for example, they say bluefin is sustainable. I, we only use sustainable bluefin. If it's wild caught, to me, that's not true. That's just marketing. Um, it, it, to me, catching a, a fish that's you know threatened or endangered, it, it, no matter how you do it, to me, it's like if you're if you're eating that, it's it's not sustainable um, because the 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 fish can't uh, regenerate fast enough. It can't reproduce fast enough for our consumption. Um, and that means that it's going to go away. It's going to become extinct. It's going to die off. And I see what you mean. Yeah. So in general, for me, it's uh, sustainability is like looking at things more circular, you know, more cyclical where things have a life. They live and die and sometimes they're reborn and uh, turned into something new, um, like the blueprints, you know, when I, when I salvage them. And Tell so, everybody. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, um, yeah. So I, I salvaged uh, yeah some some blueprints um, from what used to be the Shinola Hotel, or it was the the Meyer Jewelry Company, and that building was uh, bought and redeveloped and turned into the Shinola Hotel. I thought that was Wright and Company. No, no. Because Wright and Company, it's 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 a block over, I believe. Yep. Second floor. Love love the bar, by the way. I've also painted in that building really? before before it was Wright and Company. No way. <laughs> So like so when I yeah did, did my uh, Windows project like everything up and down that two blocks um, we, we kind of had our hands in <laughs> so before H and M my artwork you know was in that building you know and uh, so we we were really a catalyst for all that um, and, and that's I think going back to the the, the life of the building right like that um, these things were designed for a certain purpose and then after thirty years or whatever. They went out of business and the whole downtown just died off. And now they've been given new life as something that they were totally unintended to be. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, modern vandalism is this idea of understanding that, you know, someone had to destroy that plot of land to put up a building. Right. Right. So if you're a modern vandal, you would understand um, that that's going to happen. You're also going to understand that the building's going to die. It's going to use up its useful life and then it's going to turn into something else. And so if you're able to do that in a way where you can add value, um, so if you've taken something that's broken and then you've transformed it in a way that has value, to me, like, that's modern vandalism. It's adding value to something that, um, with with the understanding of it going to have this uh, life cycle. I love that. There's, like, this underlying deep philosophy of your artwork. Absolutely. (laughs) Was Was this premeditated or was this something that just came out? as a realization as you're, as you're painting? Yeah, so um, thematically my work has been pretty much the same for 10 years, um, where it's been about generally about sustainability and this creation, you know, consumption kind of thing, you know, life and death, black and white, right? These, these uh, opposites in balance. But it wasn't until I painted um, Altered Plans, you know, that blueprint show, that's when this language started to come about where um, I, I was reflecting back on uh, my inspira- early inspiration of graffiti, you know, in, in New York. Um, that's when I got exposed to Keith Haring when I was like four or five years old. No way. And uh, bombed out subways in the early 90s, you know, and all that stuff. 
And so, um, so cool. yeah, so it was all like really rough and new. Right. And then over the years, I've been watching graffiti and, and it turning into street art. Mm-hmm. And now you have uh, Banksy who, who I was does just about to say work on public space and it's illegal. Yet governments protect it. Property owners um, protect this uh, vandalized building because it has added value to right. their property. Right. Right. So this illegal act is now permissible in some instances. In the instances where it adds value, economic value, mm-hmm. it's okay. <laughs> it, yeah. If it doesn't add economic value, it's not okay. Yeah. So it has to be good. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. Good into in what what terms? Right. Good is subjective. Correct. So all the work is the same. Everybody who does graffiti, they're vandalizing a building. That's true. But only some people are allowed to do it or are encouraged to do it because it has economic value. So it's funny you mentioned Banksy because, again, looking at your I, – I like looking at your Instagram. You have a lot of shit <laughs> on there. But, you know, you had this post from March 21st of a Banksy – uh, a piece of Banksy work on the side of the building, and it said "Follow your dreams." Po-. If I said "Follow your dreams," and then it has that sign over it that says "Canceled," and that was super powerful because March twenty first was the same week or the week after that quarantine went into effect. I think quarantine was somewhere March sixteenth, nineteenth. I I remember it pretty good down to the week, but yeah, it's it's pretty intense, and I wanna I wanna dig into that a little bit more with you when it comes to the psychology of, of making that transformation, right? Making that transformation from going from a, a sushi chef and trying to open these restaurants to transitioning into this artist and, you know, the, 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 the fear that comes with that, ah. right? The, the depression, the mental health aspect, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, just what am I going to do with my life? Yeah. I mean, can you relate to that? Absolutely. And talk about yeah. it? Yeah. So, so yeah, that post was um, me knowing that my restaurant was being pulled out from underneath me. You know, so, like, it was, that was the fourth attempt. Like, so I'd, I'd done, um, I opened up my restaurant Pursue in uh, downtown Detroit in 2017. Mm-hmm. So it was the third attempt of opening a restaurant, and I finally opened one. And then I got kicked out. Um, because the owners, uh, knew like investors and stuff, they wanted me to sell California rolls and, and be more approachable and whatever. Um, so I refused and I got kicked out. And, um, so that's when I went to Denver. Um, and then Denver came back, um, because this guy who was at my one night only omakase it is kind of my last hurrah in that space. He offered me a restaurant on the spot. Wow. So like he, we kept in touch and so he, he brought me back. And so I was going to do this restaurant. Um, and then, so that, yeah, that post was like, I, I knew that this dream was finally just like, at least for the short term, like just done. Like I, I was so heartbroken. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. It's like, I already had my heart broken two years, you know, year and a half ago when I actually opened a restaurant and then I got kicked out because I wouldn't make California rolls. Um, and so, um, it, it just, I couldn't do it anymore. Or, I love that you stood your ground. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow. And so I went over the top where I did a hundred dollar per, you know, per seating yeah. kind of dinner inside a food hall. Good for you. I was like, no, nah, screw you. Like, I'm going to do whatever I want. Like, that's why you brought right. me here. It's right. for me to do what I want. Uh-huh. Um, and so, yeah, so it was just, um, unbearable at that point where I had tried so hard to make Detroit a place where... I wanted to share what I had learned 
in LA. I'd worked in, I'd opened New York's first uh, sustainable omakase sushi restaurant that uh, was uh, recognized by the Village Voice in 2017 as one of the best new restaurants in New York. So I'd like proven in New York I could do this. I wanted to bring that. I'd worked in Chicago. I've worked in Miami at Zuma, world renowned Zuma. I've worked at great restaurants. You know, hey bro, let's do a dinner party. I know, right? So, I, you know, my wife and I will cook some Korean. You, you know, you do some sushi. <laughs> Hell yeah. And so, you know, it was like that. That's what I, I wanted to give that to Detroit. Is like I wanted to bring what I had learned everywhere and give that gift here, and and get to eat it myself because I'm, you know, I I love eating sushi. Yeah. Um. And so it just I couldn't I couldn't do it anymore with coronavirus and it just it felt like my world literally you know was ended. Um, because I couldn't see a future in the near term where I would be able to be intimate with, you know, four different couples at my ta- at one counter, you know, where we're all sitting together and I'm making food in front of them and la- basically feeding them by hand, bite by bite. I don't know when that's going to come back. <laughs> and so for a month, I was d- just super depressed, you know, didn't have the lights on. Uh, the only reason I got off my couch was to eat, you know, to go get pizza from the delivery guy. And, uh, like I, I watched game of Thrones in five days. Whoa. Like that, that kind says of, a lot. like I, I was so just could not function. Like I did not leave my couch. Um, and so it was a really terrible time, you know, for a month where I just, uh, no purpose. Right. And so. I kind of got out of it a little bit with, you know, doing some research. I, I, you know, I figured, you know, I got to do something. You know, after a month of being on the couch, it's it's exhausting also being doing nothing. <laughs> it's hard to do absolutely nothing, um, which is sort of weird. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I researched and found uh, uh, UX design as, like, maybe this, you know, thing that people pivot into where they come from all different backgrounds and you can get a – you know, certification after three months and then you get this great job. So I got sold on the marketing and like, I'm going to get this job after I do this training. And, um, you know, I did the training and then I learned that like, you don't get a job (laughs) for like a year until like, and and you have to put in like, you know, 200 applications and nobody wants to pay you and hire you because junior UX designers, um, they're just uh, the, the, the jobs that they're applying for minimum requirement is three to five years and nobody has it as a junior UX designer. So it's like, you, right. you're, you're just screwed. Right. Um, and so I, I, I realized that that wasn't going to be, you know, a thing for me. So, uh, a, a friend in that, that cohort, um, and I decided we were going to start a company together <laughs> and I didn't have the stomach to be an entrepreneur. I, you know, I told her, I was like, yo, like I just been through a lot of stuff, you know, like I don't want to, to do this again, but we didn't really have an option, so couldn't get a job. So we decided to, you know, do a design and innovation studio and uh, try to get some client work. And um, we, we were working on a longer term project, like a, a mobile app kind of thing is like a big dream. You know, how can we change the world and all of that? Um, but then, you know, n- none of the short term stuff panned out. Right. Like I didn't get any income and it was six months into being unemployed in June, there was no checks coming. Like since June, I got like April, May, and then for some reason, the state decided to just stop paying me the money that they were supposed to pay me. I understood that the federal stuff was gone, 
But um, so I've been on them and, and still to this day, still haven't received that, you know, like five months worth of four months worth of uh, unemployment uh, benefits. But it um, makes a difference when you don't have that income. So it's been zero. Yeah. And so in November, I got a call out of the blue to do a mural. Um, and I've been very grateful to get about one mural uh, project uh, each year. Um, and without me selling, it's just uh, based on previous work that through word of mouth, somebody will, you know, come through the pipeline. And so that was my first income in six months. And I decided um, that out of necessity that I needed to become a full-time artist <laughs> because it was the only way I could make money. And it's the most absurd idea ever. Yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't <laughs> think, you know, in a, in a time like this, you'd, yeah. be, you'd be selling artwork or doing yeah. projects. Yep. It, it does almost seem counterintuitive, right? Absolutely. And and so I, I did what I could with what I had. And so I had these blueprints. I've been dying to do, I've been sitting on them for eight years, preserving them, wanting to do a show inside like the MoCAD and do this like big, you know, beautiful show. You did inside your apartment. And I did inside my apartment. Yeah. <laughs> Where it's like, yeah. That's, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah. I just, I couldn't do it anywhere else. So it just. <laughs> And it was amazing. I wish I knew about it. I would have come for sure. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. Um, thanks for sharing that. Um, I, th I think it's, it's easy to make the statement that a lot of us went through that. Not, not you know, exactly. But in terms of being depressed and, and, and not having that, that sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes it was just hard to function yeah. day to day. And I can tell you in my own experience... I started drinking more yep. and I haven't, I've never really had a problem with addiction, mm -hmm. right? I, I've never had a quote unquote proper addiction, but you know, when you have nothing to do and you have no purpose and you wake up and you know, it's 12 o'clock and you're sitting and you know, you've had your coffee and you're like, hey, I got nothing to do. I'm going to drink a beer. Yep. And you're like, wow, that was kind of cool. And then the next day, maybe you drink two beers yep. and then throughout the day, it just, it just spirals into a bad place. And look, I, I really wanted to talk to you about this simply because um, not only do a lot of people go through it, but I, I've, I've had this in my life too. And I find that we all identify by what you do, where you live, what you drive, the, the friends you carry, the clothes you wear, whatever, right? We have, we have all these things that maybe we don't acknowledge that we identify by, but we do. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was my job. Mm -hmm. Right. I was very proud of my job. Yep. And maybe like two years ago. Right. I mean, I shouldn't say right before COVID, but two years ago, I got fired from my job. That was devastating to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I. I really, really suffered. Mm -hmm. And when you don't have a purpose, yeah. people just never know. And I can tell you that, you know, you're talking about some like something has to be demolished or, or destructed before something else can come of it, right? This, this, I, this I, cyclical philosophy, right? From that, I didn't know I had this in me. I wrote 12,000 words of poetry. Awesome. 200 pages. That's and so it is awesome. the most raw, heart-wrenching. I wrote a book. Yeah. And I don't know if I want to publish it, mm -hmm. but I, I haven't really shared it with many people. And it's just like, holy shit. Like I did that. And at the end of it, I mean, I'm talking like late nights, you know, pretty drunk, mm -hmm. tears coming down my eyes oh, yeah. in front of my, my keyboard. Yeah. And something really beautiful and really raw came of that. Mm -hmm. And it felt great. 
Yeah. And when I got done with it, I felt like there was no more juice to squeeze from that lemon. Yeah. That's so. perfect. You know, and, and I, I think, you know, and thank you for, for sharing such a, a personal story, you know, and um, it, it's something that, um, again, I feel like we're, we're all connected in this way, right? Like, like you're saying, like, we, we've all um, had to experience some, some real terrible things in life. Um, and if you're able to then um, channel that into something uh, productive, um, it can it can turn into something really beautiful and, and you know to do something cathartic you know and you know I've, I've attempted suicide once when I was younger um, when I was uh, you know in my little depression like I prayed every day that I would die like not not wanting to take my life but like that the thought of dying was the most hope that I had you know it was like if if I walked outside right now in the middle of the road and a car hit me like that'd be a dream come true. Like that's, that's where I was, you know? So it, it's, you know, I feel like, you know, um, and, and through those moments, like that's what gets you to do something outside of yourself, you know, where like you do something that you never thought you could do because you have no choice and you have no, like, there's no more bottom. So there's like, no, like it, it's weird. So as an artist now, it's like there, there was no risk anymore. I got so low that there was no longer risk that I could only do something that was like, I could do whatever I wanted. And it didn't matter what I did because I'm already unemployed. I'm already going to get evicted in January because I don't have any money. The state's not helping me even though they're supposed to since June. So it's like, I have nothing to lose. Absolutely nothing to lose. So I could do whatever I wanted. And that was absolutely liberating. Damn, Mike. <laughs> That's intense, man. Yeah. I'm Fucking glad you're here, dude. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, I mean, this is this is amazing having this, you know, real conversations with you in like being honest. Like, is um, it, it's really special to connect and, and share moments like this, you know? Because yeah, I I think that uh, there there's there's real power in human connection, mm. and this thing that I'm doing right now, um, I mean, it came from COVID as well. Yep. You know, I, I was at a point where I'm like, you know what. It could only go up mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm sick of being afraid mm -hmm. and I'm sick of, you know, being depressed and wondering what people think about me. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do what my heart desires yep. and I'm going to talk to people like you yeah. because me talking to you, it, it fills my cup and the same with your artwork. Mm -hmm. So do you feel like that artwork that you're doing uh, is, is like a, a medicine against that, that, that mental health struggle that you've had and it really fills your cup or... Do you do you find you have a little bit of that like tortured artist in you like it's a, an itch you can't scratch? Yeah, it's it's a little bit of both. Um, where I you know so I was diagnosed with like chronic depression years ago, um, and uh, high anxiety and and things like, you know social anxieties and things like that. And you know I, I think a lot of that too is like just kind of like doctor stuff where it's like hey like now you've got a problem so we can medicate you. <laughs> you yeah. know like so I mean it's like we all get depressed. You know we all have anxiety. But I do think that, you know, there is something a little bit deeper where, like, for me, you know, my periods of depression, like, I'll have um, moments when I'm making art. Like, like actually, like, uh, earlier this month, um, things were great. Uh, I, I was doing things, like, I was being very business-minded about my art practice, which is first time ever. Um, and things are going well. I was doing all the hard work and networking crazy and, you know, putting in that same 80-hour-a-week kind of work ethic, you know, that I did in restaurants. Nice. Just plop that right into sushi or into, into art and it's paying dividends right and but 
But at the same time, with all these things going well, um, a couple weeks ago, there was about th- uh, two weeks where it's like, I didn't feel happy. And it just, it, it was a, it was a dramatic change from where I had been because I have been so fulfilled. My cup was being filled by doing this art, uh, by practicing this work, because it's very much about fighting that anxiety. So a lot of the practice, because I don't sketch, I don't render anything, it's just natural, like it's organic. It's terrifying. It's terrifying to destroy a piece of perfectly white paper. It's terrifying when somebody pays you thousands of dollars to paint on their wall Ooh. and there's no sketch. It's just <laughs> gut. I mean, you, it, my stomach is tur- churning, you yeah. know? And, you know, the one I did at Bamboo um, in, in Royal Oak, uh, it's a new co-working space that's going to open up uh, no <laughs> Monday. No sketch. Biggest one I've done to date. And I've never painted with a paint roller before. Ooh. Like the brush, I choose one brush size and it's to, to uh, account for the size of the piece. Well, it's consistency too. Exactly. And so for a 50-foot wall, um, <laughs> it had to be bigger than my tiny little brush, right? <laughs> so it was the like I sat there for like probably 10 minutes with a, a paint roller and there's some construction guys in the background. And I'm like airbrushing, you know, out of the wall. They're just looking at me like I'm crazy. I'm just like, you know, back and forth with the, the paint roller. Um, I like everything you've done, though. Thank you. So I I wondered, looking at your art, how do you find that balance between making that extra line or two and withholding? How do you temper yourself? And in, in, I got to think, in you being like a, a previous sushi chef, like there there's very deliberate actions in that practice. Do you find that that is kind of been a carryover to help you in your art absolutely which is really weird like even like in doing ceramics it's been very um very apparent that like that the sushi skill translates into making ceramics it translates into making art and it's i think that um being methodical and uh practical or like efficient with a stroke you know efficient with line you know uh, when you make a cut you know when you do uh, cut sashimi or nigiri it, it has to be precise and it's done once. And it's done with one stroke of the knife from uh, at the bottom of the knife to the tip. That's why the knives are so long. Whoa. So it's like, so it's it's very much in that same kind of um, style where the brush stroke, it's one brush stroke, it's one paintbrush, it's one knife, you know? And so there are, at least for me, a lot of those connections and um, that um, being very deliberate and knowing when to stop is for me, it's, it's uh, the work tells you when. And, and that's sort of a weird thing, I guess, that the balance is um, determined by the work and it always tells me when, when it's done. I love the knife photos on your Instagram. <laughs> it has that sweet patina on it. Yeah, yeah. I was like, damn, that's a proper knife. But that, that's oh. an American-made one. Really? Yeah, so that one was made for the restaurant because there was going to be all Korean-American thing, like all domestic ingredients from, and then, you know, craftsmen. So the knife maker was uh, from California. The cutting board was made in Michigan. Uh, Tableware is made in Ann Arbor and Detroit. And then all the ingredient, all the seafood was going to be sourced from North America. Um, All the produce was going to be sourced from Michigan. And there was some seafood from Michigan as well. So it was going to be a completely... American, um, true Korean American expression of what sushi is. I got you. Yeah, I like that. So, sticking with your artwork here, what is it that you think draws people into your art? 
That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure. You know, I think, you know, it's, I think it reads sort of chaotic, um, but also complete as like, it, it looks like one thing, I think, when people look at it. And I think that's why maybe people have fun is that their eye travels throughout the work, even though it's, you know, always very clearly defined, you know, in like a rectangle or, a, you know, canvas or size of the paper or whatever. But within there, um, I think your eye has a hard time just fixating on one point. Um, and you're able to kind of move freely uh, within that space and go in and out. Um, and then if there's another painting uh, adjacent to it, um, that's when I think it gets really fun when um, these things then start to interact with each other. Right. Yeah, it's it's interesting how when when somebody looks at a piece of art or, or when I look at your art, there's something familiar about it. You know, there's there are some things that, you know, kind of make sense. And then there's things that are completely, you know, upside down in a way. And it's it's it challenges you in a way. Because uh, for me, I want to, again, I, I want to fall into that, that pattern of categorizing it. Is, it. is it dangerous? Is it safe? You know what I mean? What does mm -hmm. it mean? You know? And, uh, and I don't think that's necessarily how art should be perceived. It should just be the, the essence of what that thing is. Yeah. And, and so, like, I, for the blueprints, I, I signed the front of the, the, the paintings. I, that's the first time I've ever signed my work. Hmm. Um, I don't think you need to, though. I'm not going to anymore. Well, I, I'm going to, but it's going to be on the back. Um, did it feel gross? Yeah. I, I really did not like it. Because um, for me, it's always been about the work, right? right? It's like, even as like a you know graffiti writer or street, street artist, like I, I didn't want it to be about me. Um, I, I wanted it to be about um, the artwork. And to me, I think that's what's really fun. And, and trying not to prescribe for like, well, people like, oh, so what does it mean? You know? I don't like that question. You know, right. I mean, I, I, in interviews and stuff, you know, I've started to talk more about it, but even with orientation is, is, you know, when they ask me which way is it supposed to be hung? I, I don't like that either. Ooh. I, I like for the, the person uh, who's bringing it into their home for them to decide and a signature on the front ruins that. Um, it's, it's then me, uh, me prescribing what they have to do with the work. And I, I really don't like that feeling. Wow. Wow. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. I think there's some, I mean, you should be proud of your work. Clearly you are, and, and you're, you're an artist on the rise. You know, you're, 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 it's like Detroit is almost, you know, in you, right? It's like part of your DNA. And, uh, you know, there can be some ego involved there when you put your name there. Well, be proud of it. If you want to put your name, do it. But you also don't have to, like you said. And... By doing that, you know, just to repeat what you said, you're not prescribing it to be positioned in a certain way, to be represented in a certain way. What's down, what's up, what's left, what's right, yeah. you know? What do you, what do you want to do with it? Because, yeah, I mean, right and good are always subjective. Right. We just, we just, most people don't believe that. <laughs> I, uh, thinking about Detroit and the art that I've, I've seen, I think there's a lot of Detroit mural artists out there. They're doing excellent work. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, once you pay attention to it, you're like, damn, there's there's a lot of people that are are, are doing cool things and there's a lot of talent in the city. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously you, this is why I want to have you on the show, <laughs> but it's, uh, I think Detroit is, you know, kind of, uh, 
diversifying in a way in terms of uh, what we're becoming known for. You know, the, the pure artistic talent, you know, the food. Uh, you know, I think fashion's coming around a little more. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things that Detroit is, is kind of lacking still. Um, but being that you've, you've called Detroit home for so long after going to all these places, Denver, Miami, New York, what, is, what special meaning does this place of Detroit have for you? Um, I mean, you, you alluded to, you know, Detroit being in my DNA, you know, and it's 100% true. So um, from my, both my parents, they immigrated uh, into this area. Um, my dad into Ipsy, and then um, my mom, uh, her grand, or my grandpa, uh, her dad brought the family over from Korea into, um, into the Cass Corridor. And so um, that was like in the uh, early 70s. Wow. So that was hit, a dangerous area. Dangerous area, dangerous time. Yeah, it was it was rough, right? And so um, the kids, of course, were, were not happy living there. Um, and so uh, Grandpa wanted to get them out um, as soon as somewhere more safe. Um, and Plymouth actually is where um, uh, he brought the family. Yeah. But his first business was um, at 96 in Schaefer. Uh, he was a, a trained lawyer in Korea. Um, but he couldn't speak English, and so um, the, the the business that he yeah decided to run or was able to run uh, was a gas station. Wow! And so um, he he fought for you know his family's life by you know building a, making a living of uh, not taking a single day off, you know doing the whole um, gas station thing at at ninety six and Schaefer, and then eventually uh, opened up a body shop in Ann Arbor, but. Um, so, so my story, you know, from a family standpoint begins here and it came full circle where, um, in 2010 is, was the first time I really actually just dis- like discovered the city, uh, even though I had lived in Plymouth and went to ended up graduating by chance, uh, from the same high school that my mother did. Uh, I went to Canton and she went to Salem, but I, we, we moved. So it was a uh, sophomore year that I went, I got to, to my first year of Canton. And so it just, it's been really weird how life has brought me back to Detroit and how this place has become home. And even though I've lived in some of the best cities in America, why this place to me is without question my favorite city in, in the country, if not the world. Um, and oh, I, yeah, man. Yeah. You know, and I think it's about that create, you know, that Detroit spirit, right? The entrepreneurship, the innovation, the grit, like the, you know, Detroit's down, but they're, they're never out, right? That comeback story, and mm-hmm. I'm just so in, you know, in love with um, how how Detroiters are resilient, you know. And you can't, you know, Detroit hustles harder, right? Like we just do, um, and you can't replicate, you know. There's there's something really special about this place, and there's a kinship, I would add, yeah, with everybody there. Yeah. Great answer, by the way. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely a, a kinship, you know, for all the people that are here and struggling and. I'm in suburbia, right? So I'm not in downtown proper, but I, I feel, uh, you know, I, I feel like I'm part of this gravity that is Detroit, mm-hmm. right? It's it's it's, I don't want to say. It's everything, right? It, it's this this giant circle of around what encompasses this area, right? Um, I love that answer. I mean, just when I think about the grit and and that word comes up so much, right? Mm -hmm. And I think to myself how scary it is that it's developing. (laughs) You know, there's, we all want better for our city. Mm -hmm. We all want better restaurants, you know, amenities, 
shopping, transportation. But there is this weird balance between ah, when does Detroit lose its Detroitness? Oh, yeah. I don't know if it ever will. But a couple of years ago, I was having this conversation with a friend in a bar, and we were in Midtown, and we were talking about uh, how nice and polished things are becoming. Mm-hmm. Wow, this is great. And now we got this Hudson building. I've mentioned the Hudson building a number of times on this podcast. Mm-hmm. You know, the cranes are there. The buildings slowly start to rise. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people are talking about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not going to be 1,000 feet. I, th- I was told it's going to be around 700. But still, I mean, that is changing Detroit's skyline. Yeah. And more than that, it's a symbol. It's a symbol of, like, in my, in my mind, Detroit rising back up. It, mm-hmm. it plays into this whole idea that you talked about with this, this cyclical idea of destruction and, and rebirth. Yeah. And, and so to me, like, that's why, again, why I think uh, it, it's important for you to have the caution. You know, I, I think that's it's very important. Um, I think we also we need to have the money come in, you know, big money come in. And so to me, the reason Detroit's so um, why it's, I guess, the most interesting city in the world to me is because that opportunity is because of how broken um, and, and how much space there is available. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, Manhattan, Boston, and San Francisco can all fit within the city limits without overlapping, right? The city, from a land size standpoint, massive, right? Right. So um, if if Detroit is able to understand that life has been cyclical for Detroit, but also America, like that cities have, they have this ebb and flow, right? Um, Detroit's no better place to, to test new ideas of how to build a sustainable city, a better city, right? Where... Uh, in Soho, uh, Soho was awesome because of Andy Warhol and Keith Haring and Basquiat. And um, th- that creative energy is what built Soho. All of those creatives were displaced because of how cool they were, right? They added so much value by being cool and creating cool things that rich people came in and bought out the property, kicked them out and built you know, luxury condos and, and all of that. The same thing happened in Wynwood. Where Wynwood, you know, a bunch of great artists were brought in. What's Wynwood? Uh, in, in Miami, there's a, another arts district. It's actually called the Design District, too, okay. um, where they have, um, they, they, they brought in all these great artists to revitalize an industrial kind of area. And now there's new restaurants and there's new lofts and all this kind of stuff. And, um, and so uh, art is always, not always, but in, in recent memory, um, art has been used as a catalyst for economic development. And so what I think the opportunity in Detroit is, is to be mindful of that and to use that, to leverage that, but to make a safe space and a sustainable space for creatives to continue to participate indefinitely in the spaces that they make cool, right? So displacing them because of capitalism, because they increase property value is so short-sighted. It's, you know, it's, it's saying, well, we want our city to crumble in 20, 30 years. It, It doesn't make any sense. Why, why, why would you kick out the people who made everybody want to live here and, and the people who increased the property value? Why would you want to have them leave? You should fight to keep them. And then it just becomes vanilla. Yeah. So, and then the, the rich people, they're upwardly mobile. So then they go move to where the artists have moved to. Right. And then they go kick them out again, right? <laughs> so I never thought of it that way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you're right. So that's All the opportunity. All the cool places are, are gritty and they got great art and, and there's something edgy to it. And, and it's not because there's beautiful architecture. Now, I love 
Detroit, you know, for a lot of the architecture it has. Don't get me wrong. However, uh, yeah. I yeah, think they right. need they need to cohabitate. So in Detroit, if the artists can stay and build something amazing, bring in the luxury condos, bring in the money, but make sure that the artists stay so that then they have their neighbors buying their artwork at full price. They need to exist together. I agree with you. I don't see that happening, though. I just don't. And it's that's to me what I, I want to work. That's for like big picture stuff. Like, I, yes, I'm an artist, but I want to work on that part, too. Where it's like, I, I know that nobody's going to just do this because it doesn't make sense from an economic standpoint, right? Is, of course, when you increase property value, then you, you sell your building and you... I, I want to uh, build wealth so that I can do this myself. So that's the big thing that I've learned about art and, and doing good in restaurants. Like, trying to make cool things is I've had to ask people for money. And that sucks. It mm-hmm. doesn't work. So what I'm finding is if I make my artwork and if I become successful and if I can make a lot of money doing what I do, then I can take my money and put my money where my mouth is mm-hmm. and I can build the things that I want to exist and I don't have to ask anybody for, for permission to do it. And they can't stop me. Hell yeah. Um, but if I have to ask for money, then, you know, I'm at their mercy. You're a force, Mike. Gotta do it. <laughs> Gotta do it. <laughs> so how, what's... What's the end goal in all this then? When I say end goal, we uh, I'm just talking about the, the continuity of your work, right? Where, where do you want to see your work go? Um, do you see it – do you have different, I suppose, um, areas that you want to explore with your art? Um, I mean it's it, – I know it's going to evolve a little bit um, over time. But uh, conceptually, I think I'm 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 pretty dialed in. You know, I I I'm I have purpose in the work, um, whether it's happening in food or with my visual work. Mm-hmm. It's all been the same message, and that's not going to change. The world isn't going to become perfect in my lifetime. Um, and so I think uh, from that standpoint, from a contextual standpoint, it's not going to change. Um, and you know, whether you know a material changes or whatever, to me those are like little details, but. Mm-hmm. Whatever those things are, uh, the the reason they're going to change is because they're going to enhance the message that's being told. Like those salvage blueprints, right? I don't normally paint on salvage blueprints, but the whole story of um, you know painting on uh, trying to give something new life that you know had you know that was garbage, um, and, and uh, painting on it with you know bone black and, and this whole making this whole Detroit story, and then. Uh, doing an unauthorized uh, installation inside Shinola Hotel because they wouldn't buy the work. So I put it in the work in the building because that's where it belonged. Um, that it, it to me, like, so it, it all whoa, happened. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So, so. <laughs> Let me just breathe fast, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell, tell me about that. You just, you just put it in there, huh? Yeah. So, so just the, like exit through the gift shop where he puts, uh, kind of, so puts the painting in the museum. Kind of, of yeah. Out. So, so the, the artwork, uh, saved me. Uh, it saved my my life. <laughs> like I, it was life changing. So this show um, gave me purpose. You know, it uh, paid my January and, and February. It, it accomplished what I needed to financially and what I had hoped it would do. Um, but it sold so well that I had extra, and so um, that money um, that I sold from from selling the blueprints because um, I couldn't you know bend their ear. Um, I took the uh, the money from the paintings and I bought the nicest room that Shinola had available on the last day of the show so that I could give them 
two of the paintings. So I, I got that room. I hung them, you know, in an unintrusive way, you know, just uh, tape, you know, uh, painter's tape so that I wouldn't be, you know, arrested <laughs> for destroying the property. Um, and so I put them up and then I, I uh, you know, photographed it, put it on Instagram and I, I left a letter and I gave them an ultimatum. I told them the story of, you know, these blueprints were found here and I gave them new life, just like you, Shinola, gave this building new life. Um, these documents and this artwork belongs here. Um, and if uh, you, for whatever reason, uh, believe that they don't belong here, then you need to destroy them because that's how they were found. They were found as garbage. So Damn. either they're going to return as garbage or they're going to be celebrated just like this building is being celebrated. Wow. And so we're still waiting to hear back. Really? You're but like, back? <laughs> it's uh, it's like, it just makes me so happy. <laughs> so I did the work, uh, true honor. Like I was respectful of the work because that room was super expensive, but I did the right thing. Who'd you and, give the letter to? Or who'd you send it to? I left it for Shannon oh, Management. Oh, you just left it right there with the art. Yeah. And then when I went and checked out, I was like, uh, can you send management up to my room before they clean it, please? <laughs> and they're like, why? And I was like, can you just do it, please? <laughs> And uh, That's so cool. yeah, so because it, so it's so the work is about the work, right? It's not about yes, of course I want to make it's, money. But it's but not. I mean, obviously you understand this. It's not just about the work. It's the symbolism of the work. Oh, exactly. So, so to me, it's like like that altered plans is to me, it was life changing. It's it's going to be one of the most important moments of my life. I know it. Like it, it is, and it will be. Um, it, awesome, it's dude. it's the whole reason everything You're else is awesome. going to happen. So, yeah. <laughs> so I had to say thank you. Damn. Yeah. Damn. So transitioning here a little bit, <laughs> I read that one of your guilty pleasures is uh, your Peloton bike. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about what you're riding. Who's your favorite instructor? Nice. Um, I didn't think about asking this question yeah. until. Yeah. So it goes all right back now. to that like mental health thing, right? Mm -hmm. Where like um, I I never get like as a chef never gave myself any respect, right? Like, I just poured all my energy into the restaurant, mm -hmm. um, ate terrible food at midnight, you know, when I got off of work, mm -hmm. you know, um, that, you know, was at a gas station or a convenient, you know, fast food or whatever, right? And uh, never worked out because I was too tired. And I found that um, that whole process is just, I was just destroying myself, you know, over the years. And so um, I decided that mental health, uh, I needed to invest time into improving my mental health and also my physical health. Because uh, it became very apparent that if I'm sick and if I'm not well, um, I can't help anybody. It doesn't matter how good my heart is. If I physically can't help somebody, you know, because I'm sick myself, then what's the point of having good ideas and having a good heart, right? right. So the Peloton, yeah, to me was a luxury. Uh, and thankfully I got it before I got let go. <laughs> um, but it saved me. You know, I, I, I work out every day and, um, um, oh, what's her name? She's, uh, Hannah Frankson. Um, she one of the instructors? Yeah. Hannah Frankson. Um, she's an African-American woman in the UK. Uh -huh. Oh, uh, I know who you're talking and about. She's kind of goofy yeah. and like, uh, just tons of fun and love the accent. So it just keeps me entertained. <laughs> and, yeah, <laughs> I, uh, so geeking out here. So my first love, I have a Peloton too. So my my first love was uh, Allie Love. You know, a lot of these instructors awesome. have love yep. in their yep. name. So uh, 
you know, she she used the word boss a lot. So she's like, you got this boss, you got this boss. <laughs> and then uh, Emma Lovewell, right? Oh. Beautiful woman. Oh. And uh, she has that stare. I don't know if you've done her class, but the eyes are like, holy shit, she can see me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Just really intense. But, uh, dude, you know, my go-to is uh, Alex Desant. Okay, you awesome. Yeah. Young, black, super fit, yeah. real real positive, you yeah. know, because I need that. You know, I don't want to just do the workout. I want somebody to be like, I appreciate your hustle, man. Good work. I see yeah. you out there, you yeah. know. And yeah. uh, I, I just love me, how, like, Hannah will say something, like, weird off the top of her head that, <laughs> like, it's totally inappropriate. Right. And it'll make me laugh. And, like, I, I kind of need that because I don't enjoy typically working out, yeah. especially if it's just, like, solitary. Um, mm-hmm. I like group sports, but that's not a thing. Um <laughs> So yeah, so I appreciate like the humor uh, interjected, I guess, uh, yeah, within right. within a workout. So right, you know, I've been coming back from a back injury, so like these uh, these low impact rides have been really good for me. Mm-hmm. Except that you know I don't like being in the saddle all the time. We're getting sure. a little technical here, yep, but yep. <laughs> you know they really help, and uh, you know it's helped me transition back into doing like you know the the hill climb type rides, and no. you know I I typically won't do more than like half hour though. Yeah, just because I'm a little selfish with my time. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I I got one last question for you, bud. Um, it's about music. I told you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think art, music is art. Food is art. Yeah. Um, I think it's something we can all share in and we can connect over. And it's uh, something that brings us together. Mm-hmm. And I'll share with you, you know, what I'm listening to lately. But what are what's some of the music you love, uh, whether it be throwback or, or what you're listening to now? Um, so it's really interesting. I've been having this conversation, I think, like three times now this week with people saying really? that the artwork looks like music, that really? it reminds them of music and like the the, the pattern, the cadence, the, you know, uh, the ebb and flow inside. Uh, so it's really interesting um, that it's had for some people um, this melodic kind of uh, uh, feeling to it. Um, and it's interesting because I haven't I'm not a big music guy because it's overwhelming to me. Really? Um, like I listen to the radio. Right. So talk I, radio. No, no. <laughs> like just like top, you know, it, you know, whatever. You're an old 95 man at heart. Five, like, <laughs> You know, it, just because like I'm so overwhelmed with trying to identify good music, you know, mm. and um, finding art. Like it's there's so much. Um, but it's interesting because the the like uh, my my anthem, I guess, like for doing altered plans uh, was NF's um, uh, options. Um, so in that, in that song, um, the, the lyrics, I got to make it or make it. These are the options. Like that's been my mantra for the past like two or three months where as an artist, it's, it's literally been the case is I have no other choice. Like just like my grandpa at 96 and Schaefer in that gas station, he had no choice but to make it. That's a crazy and, story. And, and that's what I'm finding is like, that's the good stuff. Like you have to get put in that position where your back is so against the wall that you're forced into becoming successful. Damn, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't we end it there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should be a motivational speaker, bro. You're good, man. I, uh, I'm eventually going to get to a point, you know, I'm, I'm transitioning a lot here, but I'm eventually going to get to a point where I have my own uh, studio or, you know, here in this beautiful place. But... Yeah. I want my own place and I want my own art. And when that day comes, can I can I commission you? To Let do me know. Something? Of course, would love. It would be an honor, absolute honor. I, lo- I love you, man. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. It's uh, it's an honor to have you here. Um, hope we get to talk again. Oh, we definitely will. 
All right. Yeah. And, and share some food together. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs>